This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. How many times have you heard it said, well, he's no rocket scientist? It so happens that on our show today, we have a real honest-to-God rocket scientist, even though I'm not sure he would agree with that description. Dr. Bruce Betts will be joining us in our second segment today. Dr. Betts has been a research scientist at the Planetary Science Institute. He currently works for the Planetary Society. He got a degree in planetary science from Caltech. He's worked at NASA headquarters. He's worked at Pasadena's Jet Propulsion Laboratories. Hey, close enough for government work. We have a real, honest-to-God, rocket scientist for you today. And as proof of that, uh, among uh, the publications I found on the web for Dr. Betts was Implications of High Spatial Resolution Thermal Infrared Data for Mars Landing Site Selection. Of course, who hasn't pondered that problem? <laughs> no, but uh, complementing that, he has other uh, articles to his name, such as Successful Components of Planetary Science Field Trips. So Dr. Betts is someone who is able to, uh, to do hard science and examine the complex and yet is able to, um, to boil things down as they need to be to make it understandable, I think, the general public. He'll be joining us in our second segment, and I'm looking forward to that talk. On this special edition of Radio Parallax today, we're going to have an all-science program. We're going to just dispense with current events, pretty much. Although, you know what? Talking about Mars this August is a current event. Now, the other big event, of course, taking place in California is the gubernatorial follies. Rest assured, we'll have more to say on that topic, but we're just going to give it a rest today. The planet Mars is making its closest approach to Earth in the last several thousand years. You must go out tonight and you must go out, uh, you know, for the next few weeks and take a look to the southeast or south uh, and find this orange ball up in the sky. It looks like a landing airplane practically. It It shines with unusual steadiness. That is the planet Mars. If you chanced to be listening to one of the Capital Public Radio stations yesterday, you would have heard my 90-second spot on this very subject. It's an extraordinary occurrence, and we should talk about it at some length. Now, I gotta tell you, when I first heard about this last year, I thought that, uh, you know, this is something that may be worth traveling to see. I mentioned in this program before, when we talked to our, our good friend Jerry Rose about eclipse chasing, that if you can swing it, Going overseas to see uh, some sort of spectacle in the sky makes traveling just that much more exotic and fun. I did some back-of-the-envelope calculations uh, last, uh, the beginning of the year, realized that you really want to be south, as far south as you can get. Well, where you really want to be, if you want to see Mars straight up in the sky, from best observing, would probably be in the middle of South America. So, I'm going. Now, we pre-record quite a number of segments uh, for this program. I have some studio facilities in my house in what's called the Planet Room because the decor includes a planetary model of the solar system that's hanging from the ceiling. And over on the left side, I have the Earth, Moon, Mars, and Venus. In my model, the Earth was a racquetball. 
Venus is also a racquetball because the Earth and Venus are, you know, within a few percentage points of the same size. Venus is about, oh, I don't know, something like 7% smaller. Mars is noticeably smaller. It's about half the size of the Earth in diameter. The Moon would be a marble. Now, it's a curious uh, reality that uh, although Mars is half the size of the Earth and therefore has only one-fourth the surface area of the Earth, you can pretty much match acre for acre ground on Earth to ground on Mars because on Earth, three-quarters of the surface is water. So really, it's literally true. For every acre of ground you could find on this planet, there's one up on the red planet. Now, Mars has really been embedded in the psyche of humankind, uh, really for a good century and a half now, dating back to the middle of the 19th century, when they finally got some good telescopes, observed Mars, and noticed that there were these funny little lines everywhere. Well, it turns out we now know those were optical illusions. Little dark spots seem to be connected to the eye because the brain wants to connect the dots, really quite literally. But uh, before I tell the story about one of history's most spectacular mistranslations and what it led to, let's go back further in time. Say the word planet today, we think of a world out in space orbiting a sun. The word comes from ancient Greece. There had been quite a long tradition of astronomy in the early civilizations of man in ancient Greece, in uh, ancient Mesopotamia, today's Iraq, but we, we know best uh, about the records of ancient astronomers from the Greeks. The Greeks, of course, had no idea what these pinpricks of light were in the night sky, what the stars were. It was felt even in the modern times that we would never know what the nature of these mysterious little lights were. And they probably would not be known if it wasn't for the discovery of a little thing called the spectrum. But that's a subject for another day. The point is, the stars are fixed in the sky. Night in and night out, they don't move. Well, that's not literally true, of course. Even by the times of the Romans, it was appreciated that there were very slight motions taking place with the stars because over the centuries, the star maps composed by the Greeks didn't quite fit what you saw in the night sky. But this is a very slow process. Uh, in the last century, I believe it was, they discovered a star that was the fastest moving star that's just rocketing across the heavens by star standards. It's called Barnard's Runaway Star. Well, Barnard's Runaway Star, at the rapid rate at which it's traversing the heavens, over one century moves one-seventh the diameter of the full moon. So, stars are pretty fixed. But there were several objects that most decidedly were not fixed. They moved around. That's why they were called the wanderers, the planets. Two of them appeared either after sunset or before sunrise. One of them was fairly dim, and it would pop up quickly and pop down just as quickly. It was certainly understood by Roman times that uh, the object before sunrise and after sunset was the same object which was interpreted as the fleet-footed messenger of the gods, Mercury. Following a similar pattern, but being much slower and much brighter, was the beautiful Venus. She was Aphrodite to the Greeks. She was Venus to the Romans. The startling brightness of this planet 
uh, was considered to be a gorgeous sight in the heavens, and it is. It's in fact the third brightest thing you can see in the sky after the sun and the moon. There were three other wanderers or planets up in the heavens. These moved in quite a different pattern than Mercury or Venus. They would be seen throughout the entire night at one time or another. They would sometimes be seen exactly opposite the sun. During these times, they would appear at their brightest. The slowest moving was the cream-colored, stately Saturn. Considerably brighter and moving majestically in a 12-year cycle was Jupiter, judged to be the king of the gods. And lastly, there was Mars, the screwball of the bunch. Mars had an unusual bright red coloration, and it would vary in brightness more than any other planet. Being the color of blood, Mars was thought of as the god of war. Now, because the planets of our solar system all orbit in more or less the same plane, against the sphere of stars in the heavens, they seem to follow the same path, more or less. The patterns of the various stars were arbitrarily divided up into certain constellations, and all sorts of characteristics were attributed to these imaginary concoctions made in the minds of men from connecting the dots of the stars. And from ancient times to the present, astrologers have attempted to derive meaning from the various motions of the planets against the star background. And I guess I'll make my apologies to Michael Mercury right now, but unfortunately, there really isn't any scientific validity to any of that. But the study of the planets against the stars moved from astrology into astronomy during the Renaissance. The last of the great naked-eye astronomers, Tycho Brahe, was able to calculate the positions of the planets with such accuracy, astronomers realized that the planets had to be orbiting the sun. And when the telescope arrived on the scene, science was turned on its ear, because when telescopes were turned upon the planets, all hell broke loose. Mercury and Venus went through phases just like the moon, and Venus, as bright as it was, was a very disappointing object in telescopes. All you could see was a bright surface without any markings. You could see some markings on Mercury, but it was the planet was so small and so far away and so hard to observe in the glare of the sun that you couldn't make much out. Saturn floored everybody. It had rings around it. This was totally unexpected and very dramatic. Anyone who's owned a telescope will tell you that uh, Saturn is the most delightful object for the amateur astronomer. Jupiter was almost equally stunning. It had four moons itself. If people weren't convinced by the calculations of Kepler and Copernicus using Tycho's data, well, simply looking at Jupiter through a telescope proved that not every object in the sky went around the Earth. There were four little moons that were orbiting Jupiter. But when telescopes were turned on Mars, people's imaginations were fired up, and they've remained fired up ever since. Unlike gassy Jupiter and Saturn, or cloud-covered Venus, or tiny and indistinct Mercury, Mars had surface markings that were consistent and clear. It had ice at its poles. Clouds would appear and disappear. Sometimes you'd see dust storms enveloping the planet. 
Mars looked a lot like Earth. It was imagined that as Mars went through its seasons, it underwent what was called a wave of greening as the surface markings subtly changed. We now know this is due to some of the uh, dust particles in the atmosphere changing the coloration of regions a bit as Mars moves through its seasons. It is not, unfortunately, a wave of greening due to vegetation growing in the Martian spring and summer. Mars does not have vegetation all over the place, but it was thought to be a very Earth-like place in the 19th century, and we still think so. The parallels are interesting. Its tilt of the poles is almost the same as the Earth, therefore it goes through very similar seasons. But as I started to say, things really got a bit screwed up in the 1800s, when in 1877, G.V. Schiaparelli, using a state-of-the-art telescope during a favorable Mars opposition, concluded that there were these lines all over the place, which he in Italian called canali, which means channels. Inevitably, of course, canali got translated into English as canals, and by definition, canals are made by beings who dig them out. An eccentric, rich American named Percival Lowell was captivated by the idea of canals on Mars, and he spent a lot of money to build observatories devoted to examining the beings on the red planet. When H.G. Wells, of course, wrote his famous story, The War of the Worlds, in which Martians invade the Earth, well, we were pretty much stuck with the Martian concept, which uh, we've never really quite fully shaken. Now, when the space age dawned and we were sending probes out to the planets, uh, we knew that Mars was going to be where the money was. Venus, we discovered, was hotter than an oven, hundreds of degrees. Lead would melt on the surface of Venus. And no, it doesn't help that it's a dry heat. Having clouds of sulfuric acid tends to make Venus a bit inhospitable as well. Mercury's too hot. The gas giants don't have any surface you can stand on. So pretty much hopes for life centered on the planet Mars. And they're still centered there. We sent probes by in the 1960s. They photographed the planet on a flyby, and it looked like the moon. It looked dead. It was very disappointing. We knew by then the atmosphere on Mars was extremely thin, uh, something like the Earth at 100,000 feet, 7 millimeters of mercury, as opposed to Earth's 760. So mankind kind of let out a collective awe about Mars in the 60s. In the 70s, things swung back the other way a bit. We discovered that Mars had gigantic volcanoes on it. The volcano Olympus Mons is the largest known in the solar system. It's the size of the state of Missouri, and it's 80,000 feet high. Mars clearly had an active geology. The Valles Marineris system of canyons turned out to be nine times as long as the greatest canyon system on Earth, the Grand Canyon of Arizona. It was also 14 times as wide and twice as deep. In 1976, we landed probes that went scraping the surface and looking for life. Some strange chemistry of the surface raised people's hopes, but it looked pretty bleak once all the data was analyzed. 
you were going to make book as a planetary scientist after these probes in the 70s, you just said the odds were pretty doggone slim that there was any possibility of even microbial life on Mars. But then, in the meantime, some funny things have happened. We've learned in the past quarter century that life is everywhere on Earth in places where we never expected it, near scalding deep-sea hydrothermal vents, miles deep in the Earth's crust in solid rock, very high up in the atmosphere on motes of dust. Life is everywhere on Earth. We've discovered that some life can only live inside of solid rocks and inside a water that's hotter than boiling. In the 1990s, analysis of meteorites that we know chemically had to have been blasted off the surface of Mars before they made a trip through space to Earth. Well, some of them appeared to have what might be microfossils. The jury is still very much out on that, but recent analysis of data shows that there's quite a bit more water than even the optimists would have hoped for in the 1970s. Dr. Bruce Betts will be joining us in the next segment to talk about where the science of Mars may lead, and you have to stay tuned for that. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. You're listening to KDVS 90.3 FM.